0: It's the early morning hours that are by far the toughest. It's cold and dark in that small prison cell. And each morning he awakes, and in his grogginess, he halfway expects to find that it's just all been a nightmare. But it turns out to be just another day behind bars. It's before the sunrise while each of the cells is filled with shadows and all is quiet that he feels the most loneliness and despair. And he will lay in his little cot in the corner and he will just pray for daylight to come. When the first rays of the sunlight peer through that little window that's been cut in the stone of the wall. It's then that he will begin his morning routine, and he will fish around on the floor for his sharp little stone, and he will walk over to the wall where the sun has now spotlight a section of it, and it's then that some light would be shed on the gravity of his situation. 3,000 tally marks now carefully etched into the stone of the wall. Today, he will scratch 3,001, which marks the number of days that he has been wrongfully accused, in fact, even incarcerated for doing the right thing. His name was Joseph. And today, we'll take a look at how he got there and what he was going to do about it. And on some level, well, maybe we can all tell a story that's a little bit similar to his. Have you ever been disheartened over crummy circumstances? Maybe that you didn't deserve, that just felt like horrible luck or a grave injustice even. Maybe that person at work got the promotion over you when you were the one who kept your integrity, not them. Or maybe your spouse still wanted the divorce after you did everything within your power to make that marriage work. Maybe at some point you bravely chose to do the hard thing because it was the right thing, but yet you feel like you never got any reward for it. And yeah, we know the old saying, you know, mama always said that life isn't fair. But yet we can't shake the feeling that this is not the way it should be. Oh, and I wonder if Joseph ever sort of vented to God over the cards that he was dealt in life at times. God, I followed what you said, right? I did the honorable thing. God, you've seen my integrity and this is the way I'm rewarded. I mean, just so far in Joseph's story, we've seen betrayal, slander, slavery and now he's gonna get prison. Just to catch you up, if you missed last week, or maybe you're a little unfamiliar with Joseph's story in the Bible, he was dad's favorite. And dad didn't always do the best job of hiding it. And so his 10 older brothers, well, of course, they became very jealous of this, and they began to despise him for it. And to make matters much worse, Joseph had a couple of dreams that he felt were from God, and so he shared these with his family. He said, I had these dreams. Now in one of them, there was a bundle of grain, in the other, there were some stars, but all of those things, they represented you guys. And then, a funny thing happened. You all came, and you bowed down before me. Isn't that interesting? Now, it's hard to tell if uh, Joseph was trying to taunt his older brothers a little bit here or if he's just stupid. (laughs) Because, listen, if you have older brothers and you're the young, scrawny one, typically not the most genius idea to say, hey, you want to know something? I'm always going to be better than you guys. Right? That's code for the older siblings. It means, yes, I'll take my beat down now. Only his older older brothers were so fed up that they were ready to kill him. They tied him up. They threw him in an empty well to leave him for dead. But then they thought, well, I mean, if we're going to get rid of him, we might as well try to get something for him. And so they instead sold Joseph to some slave traders that were heading down to Egypt And there, he sold to a man named Potiphar, who was a high official to the king of Egypt. And we pick up the story in verse 2 of chapter 39 of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, if you want to follow along with us. And it's going to begin with a very important phrase that actually gets repeated several times in here, and one in which we're going to have to keep in mind during the whole Joseph story In verse 2, it says that the Lord was with Joseph. And so he succeeded in everything he did. And he served in the home of, of his Egyptian master, Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar, so he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. Now that's a really nice piece of scripture because it may feel like there's really nothing out of the ordinary with it. Right, It kind of follows the equation that maybe we sort of grew up believing or maybe we even still take a lot of comfort in. The equation goes something like this. If I follow God, then he will surely be with me and he will cause good things to happen for me. It's sort of the idea that if I do good by God, well, then he'll do good by me. And I think we all, at times, want to believe in this sort of version of God. Because we make logical sense of it. And it feels good to think that because God is a good and just God, well, then He certainly wouldn't allow bad things to happen to good people. It's a version of God that sometimes I've heard described as a bodyguard. God, which I like. Because he's going to protect us from severe harm. And you know, unfortunately, a lot of people with this idea of God will eventually walk away from their faith when the unthinkable tragedy strikes. Because they will either assume that God must not exist if that is allowed to happen. Or they will become so angry at God, they will blame him and then want nothing to do with him afterwards. But one of the many things that we learn about the life of Joseph is that this bodyguard God is really kind of a misconception of who he truly is. We can't just simply reduce him to, you know, like a genie figure that's going to give us good fortune. Because his purposes are so much bigger than just simply keeping us from harm. And the story of Joseph is this reminder of that. For Joseph, I mean he was the the most obedient, the most faithful that you could probably find but yet was dealt some very tragic blows in life. And so we'll pick up the story there in verse 6 if you're following along, which is the R-rated portion of the story. (laughs) It's where I just like to jump straight to. And uh, it says, Joseph, in verse 6 there, was a very handsome and well-built young man. And Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Oh, we've seen this a hundred times, haven't we? It's the classic desperate housewife scene. (laughs) Where she's standing in the kitchen window and and rinsing off the dishes. And she's intently looking out the the window there above the sink. And the camera pans around to catch her view. And it's a servant boy, shirtless, out there washing the chariot. And things, you know, they just sort of take their natural course. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. Now notice that she wasn't asking. It wasn't in question. Because when the wife of one of the highest government officials in the land makes a demand of a servant, well, it's not something that gets refused. But in verse 8, it says... Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in this entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He's held back nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. Now this is actually a great little insight into Joseph's character that we'll actually get back to a little later. But it's important to note that Joseph didn't just refuse the temptation because of what his boss might think. He was ultimately concerned about what God would think. And so his life choices, they weren't just centered around, well, how is this going to affect so-and-so, or even himself, but instead it was Will this be honoring to God? It's a great life question. The desperate housewife was relentless. She wouldn't leave Joseph alone. She wasn't going to be refused until one day when there was no one else around. She grabbed Joseph and she tried just ripping his clothes off. Joseph ran away, but not before she had his coat in her hands. And she was no longer going to be humiliated by a slave. And so she screamed rape. And he received a life sentence. And then, look at what it says there in verse 21 again. It says, but the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. It's going to bring us to our first point, because the rest of that was just introduction. (laughs) So the next couple of hours is going to go by real quick. It is this, is that God is present with us. Just in these couple of chapters, the Bible is sure to tell us several times that the Lord was with Joseph. And it's because chances are good, you know, that if it didn't plainly tell us that, we likely wouldn't see God in the story. When things go badly, we often don't think to ourselves, you know, God must really be in this. Now, we do that a lot of times when things go well. Right? You're circling around the Costco parking lot, just cars everywhere, and all of a sudden, one of those front row parking spots opens up, and you're like, oh, thank you, God, for you provide. <laughs> right? In this sea of cars, the Lord had his hand on this because he parted that sea. <laughs> but not so much when things go well badly. When things don't go the way that we think they should, how often do we wonder, God, where are you in all of this? And so God plainly tells us in his word that he is in the midst of our trouble, and he is in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our disappointments. And get this, even when we may not feel him there. And that may be very reassuring and unsettling all at the same time. Because we just love to sense God, don't we? Growing up, if you were part of a youth group, maybe you loved those camp moments, or now maybe you love the worship moment, or, or the quiet time moment, where you would say, oh, you know what, I just really felt God's presence, which is amazing, and it's so awesome when we experience that. Sometimes, though, it can lead us to believe that that's just the way life should always be. Right, that if we're a Christian, well then we should always sense or feel God's presence. But yet again, I think that's a little bit of a misconception of who God truly is. Another version of God that I've heard, I've heard it described this way, which I uh, like, is a girlfriend or boyfriend God. It's the God who we believe his presence should always be felt. And if he's not, well, then things aren't good. When I was in high school, I had a girlfriend who I, you know, I was just uh, head over heels for. And uh, we were as serious as you could be, you know, in a high school dating relationship. And so we just always wanted to be with each other. It was the kind of thing um, that, you know, married couples of over just, you know, a few years just roll their eyes and scoff at. (laughs) Because, you know, we didn't think that we needed any space apart. (laughs) A man cave. (laughs) Why would any guy want a separate space from his wife? Listen, I still had so much living to do. And so much to learn about relationships, guys. But at the time, you know, we just always wanted to be together. And uh, so, you know, as of course in, in high school, that wasn't always the case. We lived in separate houses. And so my girlfriend, she decided to give me a gift. It was so thoughtful. It was a little miniature potted rose plant that uh, I got to keep in my room to remind me of her and to care and nurture it just as I always would our relationship. Uh, In fact, I'm going to show you a very quick movie clip. Um, And believe me, it's not far off from my experience. Oh no! Oh no! (gasps) Our love fern—it's dead. No, honey, it's just sleeping. You let it die. You gonna let us die? Mm -hmm. You should think about that. And so listen, if you are a young lady here and you get nothing else this morning, all right, I hope that you understand how much of a disappointment you may be setting yourself up for with such a gift because with my my plant, uh, you know, it may have gotten water on that first day, but it quickly died (laughs) after that because although this this plant supposedly represented her, well, it didn't help me feel her. And so the problem with the idea that we will always sense or feel God is that at times, as hard as we might try to pursue God, pray, worship, do all the things that are representative, right, of a relationship with him, There will be times where we may not necessarily feel his presence, but that does not negate the fact that he exists and that he is with us, and so we are to continue then growing still in our knowledge and our love awareness of God. Joseph seemed to have a great deal of faith in God. And, and maybe even he, he knew up here that God was with him. But you know, my bet is, is that while in prison, he likely would have told us that he had a difficult time feeling him. Throughout the Psalms, David, who writes a lot of them, he will sort of wonder out loud if you've read through them. God, where are you? Have you left me? Are you still there? But listen to what he ultimately concludes in Psalm 139. He says, I can never escape from your spirits. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. If we are followers of God, we're promised that his presence will always be with us even if we may not feel it. And not only that, but we're also assured that God is at work around us. In Genesis 39, verse 21, if you're still following along with me, it says this about Joseph. But the Lord was with Joseph in prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. The warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. Now, a servant with Joseph's kind of charges should have normally just had his head chopped off. Because old-time Egypt wasn't exactly known for their fair justice system. But instead, Joseph was given a life sentence in prison. And it certainly wouldn't have been the way that Joseph would have liked God to work in his life. But yet, when we read the story, we can get the sense, can't we, that God, you know what, God may be up to something here. And so we continue reading. We get to chapter 40, verse 1. And it says, Some time later, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker offended their royal master. Pharaoh became angry with these two officials, and he put them in prison, where Joseph was, in the palace of the captain guard. And they remained in prison for quite some time, and the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, who looked after them. We go, well, what are the odds, right? Now, these two guys, they weren't, they weren't just servants like Joseph. They were government officials. In fact, they likely would have been a couple of the most highly trusted guys in the entire kingdom because it was their responsibility to keep Pharaoh well. All of the food, all of the drink, it it would pass through their hands. And so they ensured that no bit of poison could ever reach the king's lips. And we're not told exactly what happens there. But if I were to take a guess, I would say that maybe Pharaoh got sick And it was suspected that something bad, whether it was a little bit of poison or maybe just moldy bread, but something got through inspection there. And they couldn't be sure exactly who to blame, the cupbearer or the baker. And so they had to hold him in prison until Pharaoh could get well and the whole thing could get sorted out. And we can read through that and we can immediately think maybe, oh, God seems to be up to something here but don't think that that would have been so obvious to joseph remember that although we get uh, we actually get a lot of chapters on joseph's life but yet it's still a bit of an overview in fact in that verse 1 there where it says sometime later that likely represents like 10 maybe 11 years 11 years I'm just sitting around in jail, wondering, God, what are you doing? How have you let this happen? And are you going to do anything about it? Eleven years of unanswered prayers. So I'm not so sure that these guys would have shown up, and all of a sudden Joseph would have thought to himself, Oh, this is it. God has answered. One of the analogies that uh, often gets used for the way that God orchestrates, you know, kind of all the, the details in our life is that of a tapestry where you would, you know, weave these colorful threads through a canvas to create a picture. But as life unfolds in real time for us, it's like viewing that tapestry from the backside, And it appears to be just a a bunch of threads, randomly tied and knotted and, and hanging down. And it's difficult to see how that whole mess could be made into anything at all. But if we were able to see it from the top side, from the right side, God's perspective, we would see the design. That it's a piece of art, each thread carefully sewn in just the right spot to make something of incredible beauty. And it's often the way that God will work in our lives. And as we read through Joseph's story, we see God weaving these threads into Joseph's life that, you know what, he likely wouldn't have understood in the moment. One morning in the prison, Joseph noticed the the cupbearer and and the baker looking pretty distraught. And so he asked them, what was the matter? And they both said, we had a dream. Have you ever had one of those dreams where you wake up and it's something that you just can't shake? You knew it was just a dream, but it just, it felt so real. Now, I know that they happen because I've walked downstairs and greeted my wife with a good morning, and she has responded, oh, I'm not talking to you right now. (laughs) Now, whenever I'm in trouble for something with my wife, I will admit that sometimes I like to play dumb, so as just to hope that the whole thing will pass over. It's a little cat-and-mouse game we like to play. But this time, of course, like, I'm I'm oblivious, which is even worse, really, because then, you know, like, when you don't know what you're supposed to know, you begin to wonder, oh, no, what day is it? Right? Anniversary? (laughs) Birthday? She says, no. She had a dream. And she could not believe that I would flirt and ask out that other woman and do it right in front of her. (laughs) I said, babe, I don't think I did anything wrong here. (laughs) I think I'm an innocent man, which is a declaration that I don't get to declare very often. But she was so hurt because it felt so real. You ever had a dream like that? Oh, these guys in jail, they had a dream. And remember, Joseph, he's got some experience with dreams. He's had a couple when he was younger. And so Joseph tells him what they mean. In three days, the both of you are going to get out of here. Cupbearer, you're going to have your charges dropped. You're going to be restored to your former position. Baker, uh, not so lucky. (laughs) No, you're going to be found at fault, and they're going to kill you for it. Now, Joseph, he's no dummy. So, you know, he does here whatever he can to sort of position himself however he can. And so he goes to the cupbearer, and he says... You know my story. You know I'm innocent. Pharaoh trusts you. Go to him and and tell him about me so that maybe he'll get me out of here. And the story continues there in verse 20. It's Pharaoh's birthday now. Pharaoh's birthday comes three days later, and he prepared a banquet for all his officials and staff, and he summoned his chief cupbearer and chief baker to join the other officials. He then restored the chief cupbearer to his former position so he could again hand Pharaoh his cup. But Pharaoh impaled the chief baker just as Joseph had predicted when he interpreted his dream. Ah, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, however, forgot all about Joseph, never giving him another thought. Now, come on. Isn't it just a little hard to believe that the cupbearer really just you know, forgot to mention Joseph. Like, oh yeah, that guy who took care of me, who was responsible for me in the prison, who was able to interpret the dream that spared my life. Let's see, who was that guy? Yeah, I don't remember him at all. I think it's just another example of wrongful treatment. Another devastating blow for, for Joseph. 10, 11 years, and things only feel like they're getting worse. But yet God is at work, and even when we may not be able to see it, he's threading things together for what will take place a couple of years from now. And we'll get into this next week, the, the rest of the story a little bit. The story will go on. Pharaoh's going to have a dream of his own that no one can interpret. And it's then that the cupbearer is going to go, oh, well, actually, I do know of a guy who, in prison. You know, he seemed to be pretty good with dreams. But that will happen two years from where we are in the story now. And so for now, well, it just feels like another bad card dealt to Joseph who was already sitting on a bad hand in life. And so to wrap up, I just want to give you a couple of responses to maybe being dealt a bad hand in life. There are a couple of things that I think are very prominent in this story here. The first is to keep faith regardless of the situation. Now, I know that that's a lot easier said than done, but it's absolutely necessary to know that God is present and at work, even when we may not feel or see him. In Romans 8.28, some of you may know it by memory, it's, it uh, makes us this amazing promise, really, It says that we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. But it's about his purpose and not our own. God is so much bigger than what we think would be good for ourselves or what we think God ought to do. And so part of having a faith in God is to trust that he knows what he's doing even when we don't know what he's doing. Joseph, when he was made a slave, he became the most faithful slave he could be. Because he never pushed God away. And he really tried to honor God in everything that he did. Then when Joseph became a prisoner, he again became the most faithful prisoner in that jail. Because he never blamed God. And he again always tried to honor him in whatever he did and said. And notice how because of Joseph's faithfulness, everyone around him seemed to be blessed. Everyone around him seemed to notice, boy, God is with this guy. I mean, there was no mistaking where Joseph's faith lied. And so keep faith regardless of the situation. And the second one is this. Commit to obedience regardless of the circumstances. That's not easy either. Because obedience to God will not always guarantee that we'll get to where we wish to be. It will get us to where God wants us to be, but we may not always like that. We always hope that our obedience will bring us blessing in the form of feel-good or enjoyable or maybe comfortable things. But yet God is, again, so much bigger than that. Because his purpose is to make us more like himself. And to invite us to be part of his plan of salvation for all people. For whereas our concern so many times is probably what is enjoyable or uh, what our happiness may be. God's main concern is always our character. And that we would be coming more and more like himself. It's tempting to look at the story of Joseph, I think, and conclude that, you know, well, if we just hang in there long enough, God will restore our good fortune. He'll make things right this side of heaven. But, you know, if you look at a lot of the other characters in the Bible, that doesn't always hold true. Sometimes they get death because of their faith and obedience. Right, so the next time someone tries to tell you, listen, God will never give you more than you can't handle, you let them know that ain't true. That's not in the Bible. Because there will be times there will be times where we have no idea what it might mean. But what the Bible does say is that God has a plan and that he's working out his purposes. And so we must decide if we're going to follow God to serve his purposes or if we're going to still try to serve our own. It's something we've got to decide because what God is doing won't always look successful to us. Right? I mean, if, if you really felt that God was in something. Maybe, he, maybe you felt like God was telling you to start a business or something. You might assume that, oh, man, this is going to be big. Doors are going to open. Of course, I'm going to make a lot of money because God is in this. But sometimes, you know, the most unsuccessful things in this world will become the most successful in God's kingdom And so when those who followed Jesus saw him crucified on the cross, they thought, well, that was a flop. (laughs) I mean, certainly that couldn't have been God's plan. It's why the prophecies of the Old Testament, in the Old Testament about Jesus, were so difficult for the Jewish people to uh, really believe in. I mean, God couldn't have made it any more clear, right? He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a Messiah, a Savior, to overcome your sin. And he's going to be rejected. And he's going to be denied. He's going to be killed. And they all thought, well, that doesn't seem too successful. So certainly, God couldn't mean that. I mean, if God, that's what you really meant, you know, I don't want to be offensive here, but that's a horrible plan. doesn't always look or sound like success, but yet God is moving and God is working and God is with us. I love it what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18. I'm going to read it out of the message. But it says, the message that points to Christ on the cross seems like sheer silliness to those hell-bent on destruction. But for those on the way of salvation, well, it makes perfect sense. Because hopefully, we will learn when we're following him to never underestimate God because he knows what he's doing. The worship team can come up. We at Journey here um, do communion each week. And through communion, those of us who believe, we celebrate The fact that God has chosen to work the way that he has. That God allowed his son, Jesus, to be a sacrifice on the cross for our sins. So that even though it didn't look too successful at the time, we understand the grace and the mercy that we've been shown that by having a belief and a relationship with Jesus, our sins are pardoned and we have new life because Jesus didn't just die on the cross, but he was raised to new life so that we might have eternal life through him and we celebrate that with communion each week. So let me pray for us and you can go off and you can grab that. You can take it quietly at your seats. We'll play a little bit. And um, then we'll, we'll have a closing song. Lord, thank you, God, just again, that you are so trustworthy. Lord, you know that uh, at times we have a difficult time trusting because we so often maybe have a difficult time sensing you, feeling you, seeing you. And so, Lord, we pray that we, you would just allow us to trust in your providence that you are always with us and that you are always at work. May we cling to your purposes and not our own. And so, Lord, we love you. In this time of communion, as we spend some time just simply speaking to you, Lord, we pray that in our hearts you would speak to us. In your name, amen.